book of Ephesians. And, uh, we've spent about the last four weeks talking about the power to be witnesses. And we're called, we're called to be witnesses. And we looked at how the Holy Spirit was poured out and what Jesus said to his disciples before he went to the cross, the promise he made uh, that he would send another helper, another comforter, and that in the pouring out of the Spirit, they were endued with power. And Jesus said, you will be endued with power to be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so this power to be witnesses is the same power that God gives us to overcome sin in our life. And that's what we want to talk about today. Really, we're talking about the theme of you being a witness. But being a witness is more than just the words that we speak. The greatest witness that we can give is our life. And our life needs to back up our words. None of us are perfect. We all fall, we all make mistakes. And so the point of this is not that we're going to work really hard and live mistake-free lives. If, we, if that's the way we're trying to live and we're depending on that for anything, then we don't really understand the grace of God. And so we're going to look at a scripture today, our beginning in, in Ephesians, but we're going to kind of spend a lot of time in Romans as well. So Let's go, let's read together Ephesians chapter 5. Let's go there. Let's begin in, let's begin in verse 5. Actually, let me just begin at the top of the chapter, okay? I'm going to read Ephesians 5 through verse 18. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all cleanliness, all uncleanliness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks." For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Now pay attention to what Paul says here. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. That word walk there means to live. It means how we live, how we carry ourselves, how we... It's not just the act of walking. He's talking about how we live our lives. Live your lives as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. 
but all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, Paul says, you notice he says in verse 8, You once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And you notice in verse 13, he says, But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. And whatever makes manifest is light. So if we turned all the lights off in this room, we wouldn't be able to see anything if there were total darkness in here. But the moment we turn the lights on, then everything that is in this room would be exposed. Well, what exposed it to us? It is the light that exposed it. You once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk, live as children of light. Now we're going to leave Ephesians 5 for a while. And, um, and we're going to go over to the book of Romans. I'm going to read to you uh, from the Gospel of Matthew. You can follow with me if you want to. Matthew chapter 5. That's why you should always bring your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, let me know. I'll make sure I get you one. Don't take my word for it. Matthew chapter 5, these are the words of Jesus, verse 17 and 18. Now remember, whatever makes manifest is light. Jesus says in Matthew five seventeen, he says, Do not think that I came to destroy, to destroy the law or the prophets. The law and the prophets, when Jesus connects those together, what he's saying is the entirety of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, for instance, in... In uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, we have recorded the law that God gave to Moses. 613 do's and don'ts that God gave to the children of Israel. We call it the law of Moses. Jesus says, don't think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. In other words, the entirety of the Old Testament. A lot of people today think the Old Testament really is kind of out of date. That's what we used before Jesus, but now that Jesus is here, we have the New Testament. We don't know. That's not true. The Old Testament is every bit the Word of God. It's every bit as relevant today as it ever was because the Old Testament still does what it has always done. It reveals Christ to us. It reveals Christ. This is what the Scripture is given for us. It is given to us to reveal Christ. And so he says, I didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Till all is fulfilled. So whatever makes manifest is light. Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill the law. The law will not. Pass away, 
till all is fulfilled. The law of God is the light of God to expose our sinfulness. Now, you might say, what in the world does this have to do with my witness? But it has a lot to do with our witness. So the law of God, let's, let's talk for a little bit about the law of God and the love of God. And we're going to make our way ultimately to Romans chapter 6. So let's go to Romans chapter 3. Let me read a scripture to you that, from Romans chapter 3 about the law of God. You've heard me say this before. I think a lot of Christians are under, under the misconception that God gave the law to us as a way to become righteous. And that's not why God gave the law to us. It was never intended to make us righteous. It was intended to do the exact opposite. It was intended to reveal how unrighteous we are. And Paul says it this way in Romans 3.20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So the law didn't come to make me righteous. The law came to reveal my sinfulness. And if we try to live under the law and be righteous under the law, we don't understand the purpose of the law. We don't understand what sinfulness really is. If we think that through the deeds of the flesh, by keeping the law, we can become righteous, we really don't understand what sinfulness is. And we certainly don't understand what salvation is, and we have no concept of the grace of God if we think there's some way that we can do it ourselves. And so why did God give the law? Paul tells us right here, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Romans 7, Paul tells us what the law is. A lot of people, this is another misconception we have as New Testament believers. We think the law is bad. Thank God, God did away with the law. No, he didn't do away with the law. Remember, Jesus said, no, I didn't come to do away with the law. I'm fulfilling the law. The law is not bad. As a matter of fact, Paul tells us exactly how God used the law. Romans 7, verse 12, Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. The law is holy, just, and good. Just because you and I can't keep it doesn't mean it's not holy, just, and good. It just means we can't keep it in and of ourselves. Amen? So it was the love of God, it was the love of God that gave us the law of God. You hear that? It was the love of God that gave us the law of God. What does the law do? It, it exposes our sinfulness. <clears throat> why is that loving for God to expose our sinfulness? Well, parents, why is it loving for you to expose your child's sinfulness or disobedience? The Bible says if you don't discipline your children, you don't love your children. Matter of fact, it says, you know that you are legitimate children because God disciplines you as legitimate children. So some parents are under the misconception that if we don't, it's unloving to discipline your children. No, it's actually a very loving thing to discipline your children. It's a very loving thing to point out the shortcomings of your children, not to judge and condemn them, but to Discipline, what's discipline mean? It means you show them the right way. It wouldn't be very loving if your child wanted to play in the middle of Main Street and you said, well, I'm a loving parent, so I'm going to let my child play in the middle of Main Street and they get run over. 
They say, you know, then CPS comes to carry you away. Say, but I was just loving my child. It's what they wanted to do, so I just let them do what they want to do. Even the world knows that's not a loving thing, right? And so God does not leave us to ourselves. God, in his love, gave us the law to reveal our sinfulness because we need to know that we are sinful. And the world doesn't like to hear this today because the world doesn't like to talk about sin, especially in church. People come to church, they don't, the last thing they want to hear about is sin. They want to hear about how good they are. They want to hear about how blessed they're going to be. They want to hear all the wonderful things God's going to do for them. But, but don't tell me about sin. That's negative, Pastor. But yet, the Bible is given to us to expose the true nature of who we are apart from God. And he did that because he loves us. So there's a reason why. The love of God gave us the law of God. For apart from the law, we would never know our sinfulness. And if we never know our sinfulness, we'll never know our need for the Savior. Did you hear? If we never know our sinfulness, we'll never know our need for the Savior. A lot of Christians have lived the Christian life for so long, they think they've they've got it made. And even living the Christian life, we, if we're not careful, will forget who we truly are apart from Him, and we'll begin to live not realizing our need for the Savior. We'll think because we come to a building week in and week out for however many years, because my name is on a roll in a church or denomination, because I've got Bibles on my bookshelf or on my coffee table, or because I go by the name Christian, I'm okay. But we need to live every day understanding, knowing our need for the Savior. Whether we're new in the faith or whether we are elders in the faith. We need to understand that the only way that we can come to know the love of God is by coming to know our sinfulness. You will never know the love of God until you know your sinfulness. And God gave the law to give the knowledge of sin. If you do not know your sinfulness in Adam, you cannot know the love of God in Christ. If you think God just loves you, but you have no concept of your sinfulness, then you really don't know the love of God. This is is the misconception and the fallacy out in the world. The world takes the scripture, they don't even know where it is, they don't even understand the context of it, and they say, God is love. Yes, he is love. But they want to stop there, and they don't want to talk about sin. Or as we saw, if you come to the Truth Project, you see in some of the interviews, you see the ministers of certain religious sects and denominations who say, well... We embrace all truths, and truth is determined by the light that comes in and and how it's reflected. Some truth is we take from Islam, and some truth we take from Buddhism, and some truth we take from this, and some truth we take from Christianity. But it's all truth. 
Really? God reveals our sinfulness in the light of His holy righteousness. See, we'll never know our sinfulness until we get a revelation of His righteousness. So here's the prophet Isaiah one day, just minding his own business. And all of a sudden, he sees the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And he, he, he's like a man struck dumb. He, he can't say anything. He can't do anything. He's, he's paralyzed with the fear of the Lord because now he has received a revelation of God in his glory. And he's struck dumb. And he says, Woe is me, for I am a man among an unclean people. I am a man of unclean lips. What? caused Isaiah to come to that realization about himself. It was a revelation of a holy and righteous God. So God reveals our sinfulness in the light of his holy righteousness. It's when I realize that God loves me in the depth of my sinfulness. Now listen to me, church. God loves you in the depth of your sinfulness. God doesn't love you when you get your sin cleaned up because you can't clean your sin up. You can't do it. God loves us in the depth of our sinfulness. But until I get a revelation, a picture of the righteousness of God, I'll never see myself for truly who I am apart from Him. And when I realize that God loves me in the depth of my sinfulness, then I begin to realize the depth and the power of His love and His righteousness. See, the point of us realizing our sinfulness is not so that we can grovel in it, not so that we can beat ourselves up, not so that we can have some false humility that, that says, oh, woe is me. Listen, Isaiah's humility was not false. When he says, woe is me, I am like a man. I am a man of, amongst an unclean people. I am a man of unclean lips. Woe is me. He said, man, I'm like a dead man. That was not false humility. That was real because he got a revelation of God. False humility doesn't do anything for us. But when we get a revelation of truly how righteous and how holy God is, and truly who we are in light of that, that's when we become truly humbled. And that's exactly what God wants to happen to us. So we realize that our knowledge of the sin we have in Adam is directly proportional to the knowledge of the love of God we have in Christ. The more I realize who I am apart from Him, the more I realize the depth of His love for me in Christ. God's love for me and my sinfulness doesn't make me comfortable in my sin. It does just the opposite. It should utterly discomfort me and cause me to hunger and thirst for His righteousness. Now, on Wednesday nights, we're doing a, an in-depth study on the Beatitudes. And when we look at the Beatitudes, we see a process here. We see that all of these Beatitudes are connected. In the first Beatitude, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall, they shall what? 
Do you know? Let's turn over there. Because it's very important that we understand this process that God takes us through. When we talk about His righteousness, when we talk about the law, if we don't understand why God has done what He's done, the way that He's done it, we will misunderstand it, we'll miscommunicate it, and we'll live under condemnation instead of living in the freedom that God wants us to live in. That's why Christ came. He came to set us free. He didn't come to put us in bondage. He didn't come to make us feel more in bondage, more condemned, more judged. He didn't even come to condemn us. John's gospel says that he, he didn't come to condemn us. He came to save us because we were already condemned. He came because we were already condemned. He didn't have to condemn us. And so Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount, when he opens his sermon up, he begins with this. This is the first thing Jesus said in this sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom? You, do you realize how all-encompassing that statement is? So this process that God takes us through, we come to know our absolute spiritual poverty, our utter deprivation. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who understand their utter deprivation, their utter poverty, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I mean, he's not going to just give you a nice pension. He's not going to give you a nice little efficiency to live in for eternity. You've been homeless here. You've been broke here. No, he's going to give you the kingdom. We've got people fighting over parts of the planet, and yet God says the meek shall inherit the earth. Forget whether we're going to get America, China, Israel, or... He said, I'm going to give you the earth. And we're fighting over geography. We're fighting over national boundaries. And God says, to the meek, I will give the entire earth. Wow. We come to understand our absolute spiritual poverty, our utter deprivation. What does that do? He said, blessed are those who mourn or they shall be comforted. What are you mourning over? Are you mourning over your sinfulness? Can you see who you are? Do you know who you are apart from Christ? Do you know that whether you've been saved for one week, or whether you've been saved for 50 years, do you know that you need Christ every moment of every day? That if He withheld His grace, if He withdrew His grace from you, do you know what you would become? What I would become apart from His grace? When we see our sinfulness, when Isaiah saw the righteous and holy, glorious God, he mourned his sinfulness. He said, woe is me. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We see that God brings us to this state of mourning over our sinfulness. And in that state of mourning, God in His grace 
humbles us. That's what it means to be meek. It means humble. It doesn't mean weak. It means meek. The Bible says Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. But there wasn't anything weak about Moses. But yet Moses came to understand that apart from God, he had nothing. He had no claim on anything. He had no claim on his leadership. He had no claim on anything. Everything he had came from God. And what he clung to was God himself. The Apostle Paul came to a place. He said, I have purpose to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. He said, I have nothing to boast in except the cross. Paul said, I have no claim on anything in this life. He said, everything I ever had, everything I used to claim, my heritage, my lineage, my education, my position, my power, all of that, he said, I counted as a pile of dung. I could have used another word, but I won't do it because I'm in church. But that's exactly what Paul said. He said, that has become Nothing. He said, the only thing I can boast in, the only thing I can, can claim is the cross of Christ. That is utter meekness. That is a person who says, I have nothing except Christ. When we see ourselves for who we truly are, that's the place we will come to. We have nothing. Nothing Accept him. And without him, we are nothing. This is what Jesus said in John 15. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You're like branches that have been cut off from the vine and you've laid over here and you've become dead and dry and you are fit for nothing except the fire. He humbles us. He helps us to come to a place where we release any claim for ourselves and surrender to His will. And in that state of total deprivation, we hunger and we thirst for the righteousness He has revealed to us in Christ. He shows us His righteousness. He demands that our righteousness be His. And we come to a place where we realize that is impossible for me. Not only do I have no righteousness, I have no hope of ever working up or producing the righteousness of God. I am like a man in the desert with no food and no water and nothing in sight, and I am at death's door. Woe is me. Or Paul said it like this, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, I thank God for Jesus Christ. God's love, in his love, God says, those who hunger and thirst, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And so in that place, when we come to that place of utter and total deprivation, when we hunger and we thirst for the righteousness of God that has been revealed to us by his grace, the promise of God is that you shall be filled. But until we come to a place and we understand that we have no righteousness, that we have nothing apart from Him, you know what we're hungering and thirsting for? The wrong things. You know what we're chasing? 
the wrong things. And it's the grace of God that reveals to us what it is that He demands. Total and complete perfection, holiness, and righteousness that we cannot give ourselves. And we cannot work up for ourselves. So God's love, in spite of our sin, should motivate each of us to live free from sin. When we choose to justify our sinfulness, we choose to deny His power over sin. We choose bondage over freedom. And this is what happens in the culture today when we say what God called evil in the Old Testament that's not relevant anymore today. Well, you know, that's the Old Testament. That was back then, but now we live now. And you know, back then, that yes, that was sinful. But now and today in the 21st century, that's not sinful anymore because we're not living in the Old Covenant. We're not living in the Old Testament. We're living in the New Testament. And so now, that's not sinful anymore. Really? What happened to the New Testament Scripture that says God is the same yesterday, today, and forever? And so when we begin to justify, that's justifying our sinfulness. When we justify our sinfulness, we're choosing to walk apart from the power of God. Because it is the grace of God that has given us power over sin. So the law of God is really the love of God. It's the light of God to reveal our sinfulness so that we will know our need for Him. And out of that need and deprivation, we will hunger and thirst for His righteousness and God will fill us. So the law of God and the grace of God. Let's talk about the law of God and the grace of God. Romans chapter 6, let's go there. So under the law of God, sin had dominion over us. And under the grace of God, we can live free of sin's dominion. Romans chapter 6, let's begin in verse 1. What shall we say then? Question. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, if I was really going to do this justice, I'd have to take you back to Romans chapter 5 and tell you why Paul asked this question. And he asked this question because he's talking about the law revealing sinfulness to us. He's talking about the fact that the law has revealed the transgression, but now grace has come. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Well, if we want to magnify the grace of God, then let's just all go sin all the more, and, and then God's grace will really be magnified because we'll be really big sinners. See, that's a misconception of sin. Because the level of your sinfulness has nothing to do, really, with your behavior. It does and it doesn't. You're not sinful because you behave sinfully. Whether you behave sinfully or not, or whether you're a very strict moralist, and you live a very moral life, and you can say, like the Pharisees, oh, boy, I'm thankful I'm not like that sinner there, that tax collector, that publican. Lord, I'm just so thankful that I'm not sinful like him. Now, did, the, did that guy who was praying in the temple, here are these two, Jesus gives this, this parable of these two people praying in the temple. One is an admitted sinner living in a moral lifestyle. The other one is a Pharisee, a very moral person. For all practical purposes, look at this guy's life, and he looked like he had it all together. Kept all the right rules and regulations. 
And what, what was his attitude? Oh, I'm just thankful I'm not a sinner like him. Did his morality save him? Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, Jesus said that sinner went away justified, but that moralist was condemned. Because he mistakenly trusted in his morality instead of recognizing who he truly was, a sinner who needed to be saved by grace, just like that tax collector guy who hung it out there for all the world to see. I am just a rank sinner. I know it. I freely admit it. God have mercy on me. So under the law, sin had dominion over us. But under grace, we can live free from this. And so Paul says, grace is not my excuse to keep on living in sin. Certainly not. How shall we, verse 2, who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection." Paul is not talking about something that's going to happen one day in the future. He's talking about where these believers are right now. He said, if you have been crucified with Christ, if you've been baptized into Christ, then you've been raised with Christ, and you ought to be walking in the newness of life that you have in Christ. He's not talking about one day when they get to heaven, this is what they're going to be. He's saying, this is who you are right now. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Verse 6, knowing this, that our old man was, past tense, crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died, past tense, has died, has been freed from sin. He's talking to living people here. Do you guys understand this, right? He's not talking to a church. He's not at the church cemetery reading this letter. He's talking to living people. He said, you believers have died already. What's wrong with you? He who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died, verse 8, with Christ, past tense, we believe that we shall also live with him. Listen, the moment you died with him, you were raised with him just like he was raised. And if you died with him, you shall live with him. And you are living with him right now. Verse 9, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. How does he live it? It's eternal. It's continuous. It's never ending. What about the life you live to God? You, did you live it once and it's over with? No, you live it the same way he lives it. You live it eternally, continuously, forever and ever and ever is the life that you live in Christ. Verse 11, likewise you also reckon yourself to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God. Where? In Christ, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, what's the therefore, therefore? 
Therefore, do not let, do not let, say do not let, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present, say do not present, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourself to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. So Paul starts out this chapter saying, so what's the deal, guys? Should we just go out and just live really sinful lives that the grace of God might abound all the more? Certainly not, God forbid. Why? Because you're dead to sin. So the very thing that they were thinking, well, okay, now, let's see, let's think. The law, we're not under the law, we're under grace. The law was given to magnify our sinfulness, uh, magnifies the grace of God. So if we go become even more sinful, then we keep magnifying the grace. Is that right, Paul? Paul says, no, that's not right. Matter of fact, you got it just the opposite. The grace of God doesn't come give you permission to sin. The grace of God sets you free from sin because what you need to understand is that before the grace of God came, when you were under the law, you couldn't do anything but sin. It doesn't matter how moral your life was. It didn't matter how many sacrifices you brought, how much you paid. Tithe is 10%. You pay 90% of your income. It didn't make you righteous. You were sinner because you were by nature trapped in sin. And there was nothing you could do about it. Paul said it like this, remember in Ephesians 5, you once were darkness, sinful by nature and under the law of sin and death. But now you are what? Light, where? In the Lord, made free by the law of the spirit of life in Christ. Look over real quick to Romans chapter 8. We love to quote this scripture. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Don't stop there. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In other words, what Paul's saying, if you are in Christ, you're not going to walk according to the flesh anymore. Does that mean we're going to live perfect lives? No, it doesn't. Does that mean we're going to live mistake-free lives? No, it doesn't. Does that mean we'll never have lustful thoughts and temptations? No, it doesn't. What it does mean is before I was under the grace of God, before I was born again by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, it didn't matter how good I lived my life. I was in sin and bondage and there was nothing I could do to get out from under it. Sin had absolute dominion over me and I could not free myself. But now, here has come Christ And he has set me free from the law of sin and death. Now I am not under law, I am under grace. Which means he has set me free from the dominion of sin. And now, where I had no power over sin before, now I have power. The same power he gave to be witnesses is the same power he gives that we can overcome sin in our life. And so he goes on and he says, For the law, verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of the of life in Christ Jesus has made me free, say I'm free, has made me free from the law of sin and death. So this is why Paul says, you once were darkness, but now you're light. Did you make yourself light? 
If you were darkness, did you make yourself light? The answer is no, you didn't. You can't change your nature. Only God can do that. God's the creator. You were born darkness. You were born again light. You were born the first time by your, by, by, you did that? No, you didn't do that. God created you. God did that. You were born again, not by what you did, but what he did. And you were born again as light. Now you are light in the Lord. How must we walk now? Walk as children of light. When you were darkness, you couldn't walk any other way except in darkness. Now that you are children of light, how are we to walk? We're to walk as children of light. But what do I do about this old mind that I have that still remembers all the darkness I used to walk in? (laughs) Well, what do we do with that old mind? We make it new. We renew it. That's what we do. Romans 12, 2. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That you might prove what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. And what is... The will of God. Christ in you. The hope of glory. Why did God send Jesus to this earth? That Jesus might die on a cross, be buried in a tomb, be resurrected, and be poured out in the Holy Spirit to come live and dwell in us. That we would be vessels of clay that contain a most excellent and exceedingly great treasure and power called the life of God. How are you going to prove Christ in you? You're going to walk it out. You're not going to be conformed to the world. You're going to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that light in you is going to be manifest as you walk as children of light, as you live as children of light. How are you going to do that? You're going to do that by the grace of God. You're going to do that by the grace of God. Now, here's the thing. If we think the grace of God justifies our sinful behavior, then we really don't know His grace. And if we think that our ability to manage our sinful behavior justifies us, then we don't know His grace either. And if we think that our sinful behavior is beyond His justification, I've had people tell me this, well, Pastor, you just don't know the things that I've done. And my response is, I don't have to know what you've done. It doesn't really matter to me what you've done because you haven't done anything that is outside the reach of God's grace. You know, a lot of people like to, a lot of people just like to use their sinfulness as an excuse to remain in their sinfulness. Some people genuinely just are blind. And this is why it's important for us to tell people the truth. To not just say, "Well, you know, God loves you." Well, there's more to the story than that. If I don't know my need of a Savior, then why would I ever call out to one? If I don't see myself for who I truly am, sinful, apart from Him, I mean, and really begin to understand what that sinfulness is and what it looks like, how ugly, how dark, how, I mean, it's bad. I don't care how moral your life's been. It's bad. I don't begin to understand that. I'll never know my need of a Savior. And I'll never know His love, truly. I'll live with a, with, a, with a false understanding of God's love. 
I'll think about this God of love, but I'll never really know his love until I really understand what his love has done in delivering me from who I truly am in my flesh and in my sin. And so grace doesn't give me the permission to continue in sin. Grace gives me the power to live free from sin. Grace provides what I could never provide for myself. It provides power over sin. You're no longer under the law. You're no longer under the dominion of sin or under the power of sin. You're under grace. You're free from sin by what? By the power of God. Where does sin begin? James tells us, James chapter 1, it begins right here. Thoughts, temptations. James says, no man, God doesn't tempt men. Men are tempted, they're drawn away by their own lusts and their own desires. And when we let that thought be conceived up here, we let it stay there. It gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, James says, brings forth death. So it begins with a thought, with an idea. Well, what do we do? How do you stop thoughts and ideas from coming to you? You walk around like Superman with a lead shield. Doesn't work. Works on kryptonite, but it doesn't work on temptation. We got something better. We got the Spirit of God. 2 Corinthians 10.3, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty through God. To do what? To pull down strongholds. He's talking about these thoughts and imaginations here. He's not talking about angels flying around in the atmosphere. He's talking about thoughts and imaginations. For the casting down, to pull down strongholds, to cast down arguments and imaginations that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Do you realize that when you were under law, when you were dead in sin and Adam, you didn't have the power to do that? Try as you might to control your thoughts, it didn't matter whether you thought you could control them or not. You were trapped in sin, no power to get out of it. Now you're under grace. God has delivered you from the dominion of sin. He has put His Spirit inside of you. If you're born again today, you have received the fullness of His Spirit. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. And that Spirit gives you power to cast down imaginations, to cast down arguments, to take everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and command it, arrest it, incarcerate it, and command it and make it obey Christ. You have the power to do that. Are you exercising that power? That's a question. That's a legitimate question. Are you exercising the power God has given you? Because you have been given that power in Christ. Some of you need to write down 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. You need to meditate on that, memorize that, and realize the power that God's given you. Because you're out there yelling at devils and doing all kinds of things, and, and the devil ain't your problem. The problem is right here between your ears. And what you need to do is renew this mind and bring your thoughts into captivity and make them obey Christ. As long as you stay focused on the wrong thing, you're fighting the wrong battle. And if you're fighting the wrong battle, you're fighting the wrong enemy. Renew your mind to the knowledge of God, renew your mind to the light. Why? Because you once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord.
walk as children of light. You know how you're going to walk as children of light? You're going to think like children of light. We can tell ourselves, we can lie to ourselves all day long and say we want to walk like children of light. But until we start thinking like children of light, we won't walk like children of light. If your mind is dwelling on sin, if your mind is dwelling on the things of the flesh, the lust of the flesh, all of those things, if your mind is dwelling on the person who wronged you and you're holding bitterness and unforgiveness, if your mind is dwelling on past hurts, whatever, if that's where your mind is, that's where you're walking. You can say all day long, I'm walking in the light, but if your mind is not enlightened, if that's not where you are here, that's really not where you're walking. And in time, here's what God's grace will do. God's grace will not allow you to continue living in that make-believe world. God's grace will expose that. Why? Because all things that are made manifest, all things that make manifest are, are light. And God will shine a light on those things that we can fool. We can fool all of the people some of the time, but you ain't going to fool God. And you'll only fool yourself long as long as God allows you to, and, and he loves you too much to allow you to continue fooling yourselves. You once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Think as children of light. Renew your mind that you might prove what is that good, perfect, and acceptable will of God. Amen? Let's all stand. Now, we'll continue talking about some of these things next week. I'm going to ask you a question. I want you just to, I want everyone just to close their eyes. If you're here today and you, you would say, and you know whether this is true or not, and you're struggling, you're struggling with things in your life. Maybe... Maybe as far as everyone else can see, everything looks really good on the outside. But on the inside, it's not so good. What I would encourage you to do is just in your honesty, just cry out to God. And ask Him to open your eyes. To enable you to see. To heal the areas of blindness that you might have in your life. Those areas in your heart and mind that you struggle with. 
that you take the Word of God, that Scripture that we have in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3-5. through 5. God says, He declares absolutely to us here today that we have the power to cast down thoughts and imaginations and arguments, the things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. That you would begin to renew your mind according to the Word of God, according to the light of God, revealed to us in Jesus Christ. This is what repentance is. We think repentance is a change in behavior, but the word repentance actually means a change of mind. Our behavior only changes because our mind changes. When we begin to think like children of light, we'll begin to walk like children of light. Father, I pray that you would grant each one of us repentance to change our minds, God, that we would begin to walk as children of light. God, you would help us by your spirit. You've given us your spirit, God. You've not withheld anything from us. Lord, it's time, even as Paul wrote, Awake, O sleeper. It's time for the church to awake. It's time for the church to come out of her slumber. It's time for the church to begin to renew her mind, to begin to see herself for who she truly is. Who she is apart from Christ, who she is in Christ. And let those contrasting visions begin to humble us begin to magnify His graceful, gracefulness, begin to glorify our Father in heaven as we cling more and more and more to the cross of Christ, the only thing that we can boast in, the only thing we can put our hope in. God, I pray that You would do a work in Your people by Your Spirit. Deliver us, God, from the lies that we tell ourselves. Deliver us, God, from the lies that we have come to believe. Through self-deception. Deliver us God. Let your truth Father. Set us free. And let us be free indeed. That our lives would glorify. Our Father in heaven. We ask this. In Jesus name. Amen.